The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to episode 303 of The History of Literature. Okay. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. I'm going to tell you straight off the bat, right away, that what we have today is not interesting. How's that for a sales pitch? Go home, buyer. These cars are no good. (laughs) Actually, I did have a salesman like that once who sent us home after he told us, yeah, we're getting a lot of complaints about these. We did our test drive. He was riding along with us. He said, yeah, We're getting a lot of complaints about these. Thank you very much, my good man. And now, goodbye. Wait, where are you going? Was it something I said? Indeed, it was. I am not that bad of a salesman. I'm bad, but not that bad. So I'll tell you, what we have today starts out as not interesting. The first topic I meant to explore was not all that interesting. And then there's a piece that's a a different angle that seems interesting, but turns out to be not that interesting as well. And then there's a piece that's very interesting, at least in my opinion. So we'll skip over the uninteresting ideas quickly and land on the interesting idea and spend our time with that. And we'll be reading some excerpts of Pride and Prejudice, which are always interesting. My goodness, it's like the the most interesting thing ever, at least if you like literature. Scenes with Elizabeth Bennet and Mr. Darcy. This is like, have you heard of Meet Cute? Any aspiring screenwriters out there? You know that phrase, right? The Meet Cute. Oh, there's a Meet Cute scene. These are the OG of Meet Cute. These are the OG of flirtation, misunderstanding, one-upsmanship, confrontation. It's pride and prejudice. Literature at its finest. So, Let me get the uninteresting theory out of the way so you don't spend all your time wondering if you're headed toward boredom. It's not that uninteresting. And you're not. You're not headed toward boredom. Not here. Hopefully. No more than usual. I do my best. We are building on our last episode on Jane Austen and her first major flirtation, at least the first we really see in her letters, with her Irish friend, as she puts it, Mr. Tom LaFroy. If you missed last episode, that's fine. You can go listen to it now or you can catch up later. You don't need to hear that one to enjoy this one. The main points are that we have three letters in which Tom LaFroy is discussed. She describes and Jane describes him as gentlemanlike and good-looking and pleasant. And we know tantalizingly that everyone at his house where he's staying on vacation, which is near the Austins, everyone there has been teasing him about Jane. And Jane knows it. Jane herself Seems to be teasing him a bit about his white coat, which is the wrong color, too light for the season. The season is Christmas and New Year's, of course. That's the best time to meet someone and fall in love, right? Those Christmas and New Year's balls, they attend four balls together and do some serious dancing and sitting down. A shocking and profligate amount of that. Not dirty dancing. Don't get carried away salacious listeners. Although, 
Maybe we could do that as a movie version. Maybe in the movie version, we can mash this together with Dirty Dancing and have Jane running toward Tom and jumping into his arms. And he holds her up over his head and says, nobody puts baby in a corner. (laughs) Actually, that would be terrible. Cross that off. That's fine for that movie, but our movie will be better because it will be genteel. It will be full of witty dialogue, the kind of rapid-fire exchange, which is much more suitable for our Jane. Jane is far too funny to be in the Dirty Dancing movie and far too smart. She'd be much more like Elizabeth Bennet, right? And Tom LaFroy, we don't need him to be Patrick Swayze because he... because. He's smart, too. He was studying law. He had done very well at Trinity College in Dublin, and he went on to London to study law, and after that, he went back to Ireland, and he became a politician and a very distinguished judge, Lord Chief Justice of Ireland. In fact, a position he held until he was 90. And yet, he wasn't some young fuddy-duddy when he was Visiting with Jane when he was 19, turning 20, he had read Tom Jones, the classic racy novel by Henry Fielding, which Jane excitedly mentioned in her letter to her sister Cassandra. He's read Tom Jones. Cassandra knows what that meant to Jane. It's a sign. This guy is worth some flirtation time. You know what? I said we had an uninteresting idea to get to or to get through, so let me just lay it out here. Is Tom LaFroy Darcy? And is Jane Elizabeth Bennet? Oh, big sigh. We can examine this, but it doesn't take us very far. It's intriguing because of the social meetings, the balls, when we love Pride and Prejudice as much as our world does for 200 years plus. It's been a beloved novel. The idea that Jane Austen met someone at a ball, someone from out of town and exciting, and then started writing Pride and Prejudice later that year, well, that's hard to resist. But ultimately, the idea is a little bit of a non-starter, frankly. What do we know? Darcy is reserved, detached, haughty, shy, secretive, judging, observant, Is that like Tom LaFroy? Well, we don't know exactly how Tom was at the balls, but it doesn't seem to be the case that he was. And Lizzie is fiery, outspoken, impulsive, charming, etc. Is that like Jane? Well, sure, maybe. That's how she comes across in her letters, but is that how she was with Tom? We don't really know that either. And in the end, does it matter? Why does it matter? We have Darcy, we have Lizzie, we have them in all their glorious detail. Why do we need to match them up with Tom and Jane? Is it just our curiosity? And there's another possibility here. This is the one I said was an interesting twist, a little more interesting. This is the idea proposed by literary biographer John Spence, who had took on this question and gave it a twist. We'll call it the Spence Theory. I'll explain all that in a moment. But first... Oh, excuse me. There is someone at the studio door. Hello? 
feel like Hello, I'm on a cloud. I'm Elizabeth Bennett. Elizabeth! Star of the novel Pride and Prejudice. Ah. Here to deliver a morsel of news. Mm. Mr. Darcy and I are expecting. Oh, nice. Huzzah <laughs> to us. Huzzah. However, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a young couple in possession of an infant must be in want of some sleep. Mm. Fortunately, Very our true. impoverished neighbor, Mr. Jack Wilson, has offered to babysit our beloved little one so Darcy and I can catch some Zeds. Mm. Won't you please support the cause of love, literature, and new life? We shall be eternally grateful for your good sense and your good sensibility. You couldn't stay away, could you? Oh, boy. We haven't done these in a while, these promos. But Elizabeth Bennett, star of the novel Pride and Prejudice, just couldn't stay away, could she? Well, I wouldn't keep her away. I should just give her a key to the studio. She doesn't need to knock. She's welcome anytime, but she probably will knock because she's polite, even if she's sort of the brazen one sometimes, too. Anyway, I will do my best to take care of that little baby. The little Bennett Darcy baby. I'm a good babysitter, although I'm not cheap. I started my career as a babysitter at a dollar an hour for my next door neighbor. But that was different. I got to stay up and watch Saturday Night Live when I did that. <laughs> Probably would have paid a dollar. Anyway, my price has gone up since then, people. Times have changed. And I am an impoverished neighbor. So if you'd like to help our star and Mr. Darcy and the cause of literature and Jack Wilson, you can head on over to our Patreon account, patreon.com slash literature, and sign up for a small monthly contribution. Or if you're not a recurring payment kind of person, you can do a couple of things. You can buy us a coffee, a virtual coffee, or two or three, or however many you'd like. Someone bought me 10 the other day. That was nice. You can do that. I think 50 is the record. If anyone's looking to break records, you can buy them at historyofliterature.com slash shop. Or you can shoot us a little fix at paypal.me slash Jack Wilson. That's J-A-C-K-E Wilson in any amount you choose. My thanks to all our patrons and all our generous supporters. So what do we have? We have our excerpts of Pride and Prejudice. We have a listener email, a beautiful email, and the... Spence theory, and then my theory, all coming up after this. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. 
sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Our listener email today comes from Ron, subject, a recent discoverer. Hello, Jack. I am composing this email from the comfort of my cellar library. While relaxing on my colonial-style Lazy Boy recliner, in the depths of my colonial-style house, situated in my colonial home, just a hawk or an eagle's flight down the Hudson from West Point, Benedict Arnold committed his treason in the house across the street from where I am. George Washington paid his weary troops down the block under an old oak tree where ghosts drunk on liberty now cavort nightly. The Flying Dutchman and the HMS Vulture unfurled their sheets and flew before the wind nearby. Call me literature. I have printer's ink in my blood, and my heart will always be an open book. I spent my life as a typesetter, proofreader, printer, and lover of the word. The idea of it, the touch of each character, held delicately upside down and backwards between my sticky fingers. The smell of knowledge in my eyes, ears, nose, and throat. My guts runneth over with what I drink from books, great and small. Your podcast to this 78-year-old, to whom the term social distancing is a term that defines the opposite of what I've been doing all my years of being enclosed within the covers of books and binding myself to every manner of life, death, and the infinite reward between. So welcome, Jack, dear Jack, to my world. Ron. Ron. Wow. What an email. What an email. I will call you literature indeed. I am so glad you found the podcast, and I am so glad to be invited into your world. Bravo. Please stay safe, and thank you for your email. Let's go ahead and hear our first excerpt from Pride and Prejudice. This is where Lizzie and Darcy meet, one of the great scenes in literature. This is from Chapter 3, where the Bennets, with their eligible daughters, have been excited by the arrival of a rich bachelor in their neighborhood named Mr. Bingley. In this scene, Mrs. Bennet and her five daughters hear that Mr. Bennet, husband and father, has seen Mr. Bingley after all, and in fact, they will be invited to a ball. Here we go. Chapter 3. Not all that Mrs. Bennet, however, with the assistance of her five daughters, could ask on the subject was sufficient to draw from her husband any satisfactory description of Mr. Bingley. They attacked him in various ways, with barefaced questions, ingenious suppositions, and distant surmises, but he eluded the skill of them all, and they were at last obliged to accept the second-hand intelligence of their neighbor, Lady Lucas. Her report was highly favorable. Sir William had been delighted with him. He was quite young, wonderfully handsome, extremely agreeable, and, 
To crown the whole, he meant to be at the next assembly with a large party. Nothing could be more delightful. To be fond of dancing was a certain step towards falling in love, and very lively hopes of Mr. Bingley's heart were entertained. If I can but see one of my daughters happily settled at Netherfield, said Mrs. Bennet to her husband, and all the others equally well married, I shall have nothing to wish for. Let's pause there. This is the world. This is kind of funny, right? Mrs. Bennet saying that she would have nothing to wish for. Knowing Jane and her wit and her dry sense of humor, there's something a little comical about this. I shall have nothing to wish for. Imagine a father saying, oh, if my kid gets into Stanford or whatever school you want, I know people who feel this way about University of Michigan or Wisconsin or whatever. I want at least one kid to be a badger, a father said to me the other day. And if the others go to school too, if they get into college and get their degrees, my life will be complete. I can die a happy man. <laughs> what an odd thing to say when you think about it. How about their happiness? Your children's happiness? How about their careers? How about how about their children? Their future marriages? Your grandchildren? How about a million other things? How about your own health and happiness? The wish is so powerful. She wants good marriages for her daughters so badly that she's falling just on the side of comedy here. This is something to remember with Pride and Prejudice and with Jane Austen in particular. There's something very serious at work here, underlying ideas like that. And that has to do with the economics of marriage. There's a wonderful article on the website of Jasna the Jane Austen Society of North America, by a professor of law in Canada named Martha Bailey, which walks us through the marriage law in Jane Austen's time. It's a great article. It covers premarital sex and marrying relatives and clandestine and underage marriage, divorce, children out of wedlock, and, of course, the economics of marriage. As Martha Bailey puts it, in the world of Jane Austen, quote, marriage for money alone is wrong, but marriage without a fortune on at least one side is imprudent. End quote. Jane herself lived this out. The biggest thing that blocked her from marrying Tom Lafroy, well, we don't know for sure that they were close to getting married. Later in life, he apparently confided to his nephew that he was in love with Jane. A boyish love, he said. Boyish, why? Because it was imprudent. That's the best guess. Neither of them had money, and so their relationship couldn't get started. They might have been attracted, they might have had fun, they might have found each other's company agreeable, they might have even thought, oh, if, what if, if only, if only. But his own parents had their hands full with five older sisters who needed to be married off, which might have required a dowry, which Mr. Bennett himself, Getting back to the novel, Pride and Prejudice, Mr. Bennett viewed as, quote, bribes to worthless young men to marry his daughters, end quote. And Tom's younger brother had already married for love, not for money, which put some pressure on Tom. Marry for money, cross Jane off your list. Alas, her prospects are mediocre. If we have two prongs, however, let's call these the two Martha Bailey prongs. 
One of them is that marriage without love is wrong, and the other prong is that marriage without money, on at least one side, is imprudent. We see both sides of this in Jane's life. Both prongs are in evidence. Marriage without money on at least one side is imprudent. Well, that's the story of Tom LaFroy and Jane Austen. And the story that marriage without love is wrong, we see that playing out in a couple of places. In 1802, a brother of some of her friends proposed to her, to Jane, Harris Big Wither. She was 27, getting up there in those days, and he was 21. And guess what? Jane said yes. Huzzah. And then the next day, she broke it off. Happiness. It wasn't there. It didn't look like it would be there for her. She valued that happiness, love, compatibility. She valued that even more than just being married. Some people in the day said, hey, get married when the money works out. Fine. You can fall in love later. Learn to love. I know people who have done this or adopted this as their philosophy. You get to a certain age, you get married. Pair yourselves up. You never know. Anyway, you might learn to love. And lots of love fizzles out quickly. So if you're reasonably compatible, go ahead and get married. Jane said, nope, not for me. I'm not rolling the dice on that. Jane, the the queen anatomist of love and relationships, who's seen it as clearly as anyone in her day, certainly, and as anyone really of all time, based on her novels. She looked at this whole situation and said, no, no, I'm not taking that risk. And for the next 14 years of her life, she never did get married. When she was 37, she wrote a letter to her niece, Fanny, and said, quote, nothing can be compared to the misery of being bound without love. If his deficiencies of manner strike you more than all his good qualities, give him up at once, end quote. Let's return to chapter three of our book so we can see Elizabeth and Darcy meeting for the first time. Remember what we're looking for here. Do we see love? The possibility of it? Is there a spark? And can we see Jane and Tom in these characters of Elizabeth and Mr. Uh, Mr. Darcy. In a few days, Mr. Bingley returned Mr. Bennett's visit and sat about ten minutes with him in his library. He had entertained hopes of being admitted to a sight of the young ladies, of whose beauty he had heard much, but he saw only the father. The ladies were somewhat more fortunate, for they had the advantage of ascertaining from an upper window that he wore a blue coat and rode a black horse. An invitation to dinner was soon afterwards dispatched, and already had Mrs. Bennet planned the courses that were to do credit to her housekeeping when an answer arrived which deferred it all. Mr. Bingley was obliged to be in town the following day, and, consequently, unable to accept the honor of their invitation, etc., Mrs. Bennet was quite disconcerted. She could not imagine what business he could have in town so soon after his arrival in Hertfordshire, and she began to fear that he might be always flying about from one place to another and never settled at Netherfield as he ought to be. Lady Lucas quieted her fears a little by starting the idea of his being gone to London only to get a large party for the ball and a report soon followed that Mr. Bingley was to bring twelve ladies and seven gentlemen with him to the assembly. The girls grieved over such a number of ladies. 
but were comforted the day before the ball by hearing that instead of twelve he brought only six with him from London, his five sisters and a cousin. And when the party entered the assembly room, it consisted of only five altogether, Mr. Bingley, his two sisters, the husband of the eldest, and another young man. Mr. Bingley was good-looking and gentlemanlike. He had a pleasant countenance and easy, unaffected manners. His sisters were fine women with an air of decided fashion. His brother-in-law, Mr. Hurst, merely looked the gentleman, but his friend Mr. Darcy soon drew the attention of the room by his fine, tall person, handsome features, noble mien, and the report which was in general circulation within five minutes after his entrance of his having ten thousand a year. The gentleman pronounced him to be a fine figure of a man. The ladies declared he was much handsomer than Mr. Bingley, and he was looked at with great admiration for about half the evening, till his manners gave a disgust which turned the tide of his popularity. For he was discovered to be proud, to be above his company, and above being pleased, and not all his large estate in Derbyshire could then save him from having a most forbidding, disagreeable countenance, and being unworthy to be compared with his friend. Mr. Bingley had soon made himself acquainted with all the principal people in the room. He was lively and unreserved, danced every dance, was angry that the ball closed so early, and talked of giving one himself at Netherfield. Such amiable qualities must speak for themselves. What a contrast between him and his friend! Mr. Darcy danced only once with Mrs. Hurst and once with Miss Bingley, declined being introduced to any other lady, and spent the rest of the evening in walking about the room, speaking occasionally to one of his own party. His character was decided. He was the proudest, most disagreeable man in the world, and everybody hoped that he would never come there again. Amongst the most violent against him was Mrs. Bennet, whose dislike of his general behavior was sharpened into particular resentment by his having slighted one of her daughters. Elizabeth Bennet had been obliged by the scarcity of gentlemen to sit down for two dances, and during part of that time Mr. Darcy had been standing near enough for her to hear a conversation between him and Mr. Bingley, who came from the dance for a few minutes to press his friend to join it. "'Come, Darcy!' said he. I must have you dance. I hate to see you standing about by yourself in this stupid manner. You had much better dance. I certainly shall not. You know how I detest it, unless I am particularly acquainted with my partner. At such an assembly as this, it would be insupportable. Your sisters are engaged, and there is not another woman in the room whom it would not be a punishment for me to stand up with. I would not be so fastidious as you are, cried Mr. Bingley, for a kingdom. Upon my honor, I never met with so many pleasant girls in my life as I have this evening, and there are several of them you see uncommonly pretty. You are dancing with the only handsome girl in the room, said Mr. Darcy, looking at the eldest, Miss Bennet. Oh, she is the most beautiful creature I ever beheld, but there is one of her sisters sitting down just behind you who is very pretty and I dare say very agreeable. Do let me ask my partner to introduce you. Which do you mean? And turning round, he looked for a moment at Elizabeth, till, catching her eye, he withdrew his own and coldly said, She is tolerable, 
but not handsome enough to tempt me. I am in no humor at present to give consequence to young ladies who are slighted by other men. You had better return to your partner and enjoy her smiles, for you are wasting your time with me. Mr. Bingley followed his advice. Mr. Darcy walked off, and Elizabeth remained with no very cordial feelings towards him. She told the story, however, with great spirit among her friends, for she had a lively, playful disposition, which delighted in anything ridiculous. Okay, that's that snippet. And then later that night, Mrs. Bennet is telling her husband about Mr. Bingley and the great success of his having paid much attention to her eldest daughter, Jane. And we hear another bit about Darcy, at least from Mrs. Bennet's perspective. She says, quote, Oh, my dear, I am quite delighted with him. He is so excessively handsome, and his sisters are charming women. She's talking about Bingley here. I never in my life saw anything more elegant than their dresses. I dare say the lace upon Mrs. Hurst's gown. Here she was interrupted again. Mr. Bennet protested against any description of finery. She was therefore obliged to seek another branch of the subject, and related, with much bitterness of spirit and some exaggeration, the shocking rudeness of Mr. Darcy. But I can assure you, she added, that Lizzie does not lose much by not suiting his fancy, for he is a most disagreeable, horrid man, not at all worth pleasing, so high and so conceited that there was no enduring him. He walked here and he walked there, fancying himself so very great not handsome enough to dance with. I wish you had been there, my dear, to have given him one of your set-downs. I quite detest the man. That's the end of the chapter. Already I'm starting to think that this isn't really what we're looking for here. We don't have a reason to think that Tom Lefroy was really like this, high and conceited, fancying himself so very great. If anything, he seems to have been the opposite. He and Jane danced together and sat down together and talked about the novel Tom Jones. And when people teased him about Jane, he blushed. And when Jane went to visit, he ran away. And later, he and his friend just turned up at Jane's house. This does not seem conceited or haughty to me. So what do we do? What do we do if we imagine that Jane put herself as Lizzie? There is a little bit to make us think of that. Jane does seem like the kind of person who, if she were insulted by someone at a dance she would feel the sting she wouldn't she wouldn't uh she would not register it but then she would laugh about it with her friends later she would enjoy telling people about anything ridiculous that does sound like jane a little bit so what are we supposed to do with this if we're trying to find lizzie and darcy and the the subjects of jane and tom Maybe she put herself as Lizzie and then had Tom as Darcy, but thought, what if what if I was wrong about this Tom from the start? What if something made him seem different from what he actually was? What if his good qualities don't emerge until later? But at first I have a mistaken impression of him as being haughty, but this isn't really. Tom was young. Tom was a student. This is not really fitting with what I'm seeing in Mr. Darcy. But there's another idea to consider, which is the Spence theory. John Spence, literary biographer. He says, yes, 
you can see inspiration. You can see that Lizzie and Darcy were inspired by Jane and Tom, but it was the other way around. Tom is like Lizzie and Jane is like Darcy. Let's take a quick break and think about that and hear some more from our novel. We can't just base this on one excerpt. Plus, they're so fun to read. This is such a good book. Let's take a quick break and then see where that new theory takes us. We are diving into Pride and Prejudice today. We've heard all about Jane Austen and Tom LaFroy last episode and the start of this one. We've heard a little about Elizabeth and Darcy. We've seen the two of them meet, or the two of them encounter one another, the overheard conversation where Darcy is rude about Lizzie, the snub. We are now considering whether John Spence's theory has any merit. Is Jane like Darcy and is Tom like Lizzie? Where does that get us? Here's an excerpt from chapter six. Occupied in observing Mr. Bingley's attentions to her sister, Elizabeth was far from suspecting that she was herself becoming an object of some interest in the eyes of his friend. Mr. Darcy had at first scarcely allowed her to be pretty. He had looked at her without admiration at the ball, and when they next met, he looked at her only to criticize. But no sooner had he made it clear to himself and his friends that she had hardly a good feature in her face than he began to find it was rendered uncommonly intelligent by the beautiful expression of her dark eyes. To this discovery succeeded some others equally mortifying. Though he had detected with a critical eye more than one failure of perfect symmetry in her form, he was forced to acknowledge her figure to be light and pleasing, and in spite of his asserting that her manners were not those of the fashionable world, he was caught by their easy playfulness. Of this she was perfectly unaware. To her he was only the man who made himself agreeable nowhere, and who had not thought her handsome enough to dance with he began to wish to know more of her, and as a step towards conversing with her himself, attended to her conversation with others. His doing so drew her notice. It was at Sir William Lucas's where a large party were assembled. What does Mr. Darcy mean, said she to Charlotte, by listening to my conversation with Colonel Forster? That is a question which Mr. Darcy only can answer. "'But if he does it any more, I shall certainly let him know that I see what he is about. "'He has a very satirical eye, and if I do not begin by being impertinent myself, "'I shall soon grow afraid of him.' "'On his approaching them soon afterwards, though without seeming to have any intention of speaking, "'Miss Lucas defied her friend to mention such a subject to him, "'which immediately provoking Elizabeth to do it, she turned to him and said,' Did you not think, Mr. Darcy, that I expressed myself uncommonly well just now when I was teasing Colonel Forster to give us a ball at Meryton? With great energy, but it is always a subject which makes a lady energetic. 
You are severe on us. It will be her turn soon to be teased, said Miss Lucas. I am going to open the instrument, Eliza, and you know what follows. This is Lizzie talking now. You are a very strange creature by way of a friend, always wanting me to play and sing before anybody and everybody. If my vanity had taken a musical turn, you would have been invaluable. But as it is, I would really rather not sit down before those who must be in the habit of hearing the very best performers. On Miss Lucas's persevering, however, she added, Very well, if it must be so, it must. And gravely glancing at Mr. Darcy, There is a fine old saying which everybody here is, of course, familiar with. Keep your breath to cool your porridge and I shall keep mine to swell my song. Her performance was pleasing, though by no means capital. After a song or two, and before she could reply to the entreaties of several that she would sing again, she was eagerly succeeded at the instrument by her sister Mary, who having, in consequence of being the only plain one in the family, worked hard for knowledge and accomplishments, was always impatient for display. Mary had neither genius nor taste, and though vanity had given her application, it had given her likewise a pedantic air and conceited manner, which would have injured a higher degree of excellence than she had reached. Elizabeth, easy and unaffected, had been listened to with much more pleasure, though not playing half so well, and Mary, at the end of a long concerto, was glad to purchase praise and gratitude by Scotch and Irish airs at the request of her younger sisters, who, with some of the Lucases and two or three officers, joined eagerly in dancing at one end of the room. Mr. Darcy stood near them in silent indignation at such a mode of passing the evening, to the exclusion of all conversation, and was too much engrossed by his thoughts to perceive that Sir William Lucas was his neighbor, till Sir William thus began. "'What a charming amusement for young people this is, Mr. Darcy!' There's nothing like dancing, after all. I consider it as one of the first refinements of polished society. Certainly, sir, and it has the advantage also of being in vogue amongst the less polished societies of the world. Every savage can dance. Sir William only smiled. Your friend performs delightfully, he continued after a pause on seeing Bingley join the group, and I doubt not that you are an adept in the science yourself, Mr. Darcy. You saw me dance at Meryton, I believe, sir. Yes, indeed, and received no inconsiderable pleasure from the sight. Do you often dance at St. James's? Never, sir. Do you not think it would be a, pro a proper compliment to the place? It is a compliment which I never pay to any place if I can avoid it. You have a house in town, I conclude? Mr. Darcy bowed. I had once had some thought of fixing in town myself, for I am fond of superior society, but I did not feel quite certain that the air of London would agree with Lady Lucas. He paused in hopes of an answer, but his companion was not disposed to make any, and Elizabeth, at that instant, moving towards them, he was struck with the action of doing a very gallant thing, and called out to her. "'My dear Miss Eliza, why are you not dancing? "'Mr. Darcy, you must allow me to present this young lady to you "'as a very desirable partner. "'You cannot refuse to dance, I am sure, when so much beauty is before you.' "'And, taking her hand, he would have given it to Mr. Darcy, "'who, though extremely surprised, was not unwilling to receive it, "'when she instantly drew back and said with some discomposure to Sir William, 
Indeed, sir, I have not the least intention of dancing. I entreat you not to suppose that I moved this way in order to beg for a partner. Mr. Darcy, with grave propriety, requested to be allowed the honor of her hand, but in vain. Elizabeth was determined, nor did Sir William at all shake her purpose by his attempt at persuasion. You excel so much in the dance, Miss Eliza, that it is cruel to deny me the happiness of seeing you, and though this gentleman dislikes the amusement in general, he can have no objection, I am sure, to oblige us for one half hour. Mr. Darcy is all politeness, said Elizabeth, smiling. He is indeed, but considering the inducement, my dear Miss Eliza, we cannot wonder at his complaisance, for who would object to such a partner? Elizabeth looked archly and turned away. Her resistance had not injured her with the gentleman, and he was thinking of her with some complacency when thus accosted by Miss Bingley. This is now Miss Bingley in. Mr. Darcy. She says, I can guess the subject of your reverie. I should imagine not. You are considering how insupportable it would be to pass many evenings in this manner, in such society, and indeed I am quite of your opinion. I was never more annoyed. The insipidity and yet the noise, the nothingness and yet the self-importance of all those people. What would I give to hear your strictures on them? Your conjecture is totally wrong, I assure you. My mind was more agreeably engaged. I have been meditating on the very great pleasure which a pair of fine eyes in the face of a pretty woman can bestow. Miss Bingley immediately fixed her eyes on his face and desired he would tell her what lady had the credit of inspiring such reflections. Mr. Darcy replied with great intrepidity, Miss Elizabeth Bennet. Miss Elizabeth Bennet? repeated Miss Bingley. I am all astonishment. How long has she been such a favorite? And pray, when am I to wish you joy? That is exactly the question which I expected you to ask. A lady's imagination is very rapid. It jumps from admiration to love, from love to matrimony in a moment. I knew you would be wishing me joy. Nay, if you are serious about it, I shall consider the matter as absolutely settled. You will be having a charming mother-in-law, indeed, and of course she will always be at Pemberley with you. He listened to her with perfect indifference, while she chose to entertain herself in this manner, and as his composure convinced her that all was safe, her wit flowed long. Okay, so where are we? Who is pride and who is prejudice here? Darcy is proud, Lizzie is prejudiced against him. Or is it that Darcy is prejudiced, finding Lizzie only tolerable, and Lizzie is proud against that viewpoint? Let's hold that thought. If we're going to view Lizzie as either Jane or Tom, and Darcy is one or the other, we have to consider also that the characters change over time. Pride morphs into prejudice and vice versa. There are arcs of development in this novel and reversals and new understandings. One of the marks of genius of Jane Austen is that the characters aren't static. They're not flat in E.M. Forster's famous description. They're round, as main characters should be. And both Jane and Tom were round too, as real human beings are. Let's jump to something later in the book, to chapter 34. Let's hear this moment, chapter 34. When they were gone, Elizabeth, as if intending to exasperate herself as much as possible against Mr. Darcy, chose for her employment 
the examination of all the letters which Jane had written to her since her being in Kent. They contained no actual complaint, nor was there any revival of past occurrences or any communication of present suffering. But in all, and in almost every line of each, there was a want of that cheerfulness which had been used to characterize her style, and which, proceeding from the serenity of a mind at ease with itself and kindly disposed towards everyone, had been scarcely ever clouded. Elizabeth noticed every sentence conveying the idea of uneasiness with an attention which it had hardly received on the first perusal. Mr. Darcy's shameful boast of what misery he had been able to inflict gave her a keener sense of her sister's sufferings. It was some consolation to think that his visit to Rosings was to end on the day after the next, and a still greater that in less than a fortnight she should herself be with Jane again, and enabled to contribute to the recovery of her spirits by all that affection could do. She could not think of Darcy's leaving Kent without remembering that his cousin was to go with him, but Colonel Fitzwilliam had made it clear that he had no intentions at all, and agreeable as he was, she did not mean to be unhappy about him. While settling this point, she was suddenly roused by the sound of the doorbell, and her spirits were a little fluttered by the idea of its being Colonel Fitzwilliam himself, who had once before called late in the evening, and might now come to inquire particularly after her. But this idea was soon banished, and her spirits were very differently affected, when, to her utter amazement, she saw Mr. Darcy walk into the room. In an hurried manner, he immediately began an inquiry after her health, imputing his visit to a wish of hearing that she were better. She answered him with cold civility. He sat down for a few moments, and then, getting up, walked about the room. Elizabeth was surprised, but said not a word. After a silence of several minutes, he came towards her in an agitated manner, and thus began. "'In vain I have struggled. It will not do. My feelings will not be repressed. You must allow me to tell you how ardently I admire and love you.' Elizabeth's astonishment was beyond expression. She stared, colored, doubted, and was silent. This he considered sufficient encouragement, and the avowal of all that he felt and had long felt for her immediately followed. He spoke well, but there were feelings besides those of the heart to be detailed, and he was not more eloquent on the subject of tenderness than of pride. His sense of her inferiority, of its being a degradation, of the family obstacles which had always opposed to inclination, were dwelt on with a warmth which seemed due to the consequence he was wounding, but was very unlikely to recommend his suit. In spite of her deeply rooted dislike, she could not be insensible to the compliment of such a man's affection, and though her intentions did not vary for an instant, she was at first sorry for the pain he was to receive. Till, roused to resentment by his subsequent language, she lost all compassion in anger. She tried, however, to compose herself to answer him with patience when he should have done. He concluded with representing to her the strength of that attachment which, in spite of all his endeavors, he had found impossible to conquer, and with expressing his hope that it would now be rewarded by her acceptance of his hand. As he said this, she could easily see that he had no doubt of a favorable answer. He spoke of apprehension and anxiety, but his countenance expressed real security. Such a circumstance could only exasperate farther, and when he ceased, the color rose into her cheeks, and she said, In such 
cases as this, it is, I believe, the established mode to express a sense of obligation for the sentiments avowed, however unequally they may be returned. It is natural that obligation should be felt, and if I could feel gratitude, I would now thank you. But I cannot. I have never desired your good opinion, and you have certainly bestowed it most unwillingly. I am sorry to have occasioned pain to anyone. It has been most unconsciously done. However, and I hope will be of short duration. The feelings which, you tell me, have long prevented the acknowledgement of your regard can have little difficulty in overcoming it after this explanation. Mr. Darcy, who was leaning against the mantelpiece with his eyes fixed on her face, seemed to catch her words with no less resentment than surprise. His complexion became pale with anger, and the disturbance of his mind was visible in every feature. He was struggling for the appearance of composure, and would not open his lips till he believed himself to have attained it. The pause was, to Elizabeth's feelings, dreadful. At length, with a voice of forced calmness, he said, And this is all the reply which I am to have the honor of expecting. I might, perhaps, wish to be informed why, with so little endeavor at civility, I am thus rejected, but it is of small importance. I might as well inquire, replied she, why, with so evident a desire of offending and insulting me, you chose to tell me that you liked me against your will, against your reason, and even against your character. Was not this some excuse for incivility, if I was uncivil? But I have other provocations. You know I have. Had not my feelings decided against you, had they been indifferent, or had they even been favorable— do you think that any consideration would tempt me to accept the man who has been the means of ruining, perhaps forever, the happiness of a most beloved sister? As she pronounced these words, Mr. Darcy changed color. But the emotion was short, and he listened without attempting to interrupt her while she continued. I have every reason in the world to think ill of you. No motive can excuse the unjust and ungenerous part you acted there. You dare not, you cannot deny, that you have been the principal, if not the only means of dividing them from each other, of exposing one to the censure of the world for caprice and instability, and the other to its derision for disappointed hopes, and involving them both in misery of the acutest kind. She paused and saw with no slight indignation that he was listening with an air which proved him wholly unmoved by any feeling of remorse. He even looked at her with a smile of affected incredulity. "'Can you deny that you have done it?' she repeated. With assumed tranquility, he then replied, "'I have no wish of denying that I did everything in my power to separate my friend from your sister, or that I rejoice in my success.' Towards him, I have been kinder than towards myself. Elizabeth disdained the appearance of noticing this civil reflection, but its meaning did not escape, nor was it likely to conciliate her. But it is not merely this affair, she continued, on which my dislike is founded. Long before it had taken place, my opinion of you was decided. Your character was unfolded in the recital, which I received many months ago from Mr. Wickham. On this subject, what can you have to say? In what imaginary act of friendship can you here defend yourself? Or under what misrepresentation can you here impose upon others? 
You take an eager interest in that gentleman's concerns, said Darcy in a less tranquil tone and with a heightened color. Who that knows what his misfortunes have been can help feeling an interest in him? His misfortunes, repeated Darcy contemptuously. Yes, his misfortunes have been great indeed. And of your infliction, cried Elizabeth with energy. You have reduced him to his present state of poverty, comparative poverty. You have withheld the advantages which you must know to have been designed for him. You have deprived the best years of his life of that independence which was no less his due than his desert. You have done all this, and yet you can treat the mention of his misfortune with contempt and ridicule. And this cried Darcy as he walked with quick steps across the room, is your opinion of me. This is the estimation in which you hold me. I thank you for explaining it so fully. My faults, according to this calculation, are heavy indeed. But perhaps, added he, stopping in his walk and turning towards her, these offenses might have been overlooked had not your pride been hurt by my honest confession of the scruples that had long prevented my forming any serious design. These bitter accusations might have been suppressed had I, with greater policy, concealed my struggles and flattered you into the belief of my being impelled by unqualified, unalloyed inclination, by reason, by reflection, by everything. But disguise of every sort is my abhorrence, nor am I ashamed of the feelings I related. They were natural and just. Could you expect me to rejoice in the inferiority of your connections? to congratulate myself on the hope of relations whose condition in life is so decidedly beneath my own? Elizabeth felt herself growing more angry every moment, yet she tried to the utmost to speak with composure when she said, You are mistaken, Mr. Darcy, if you suppose that the mode of your declaration affected me in any other way than as it spared me the concern which I might have felt in refusing you had you behaved in a more gentlemanlike manner. She saw him start at this, but he said nothing, and she continued, You could not have made the offer of your hand in any possible way that would have tempted me to accept it. Again, his astonishment was obvious, and he looked at her with an expression of mingled incredulity and mortification. She went on, from the very beginning, from the first moment, I may almost say, of my acquaintance with you, your manners, impressing me with the fullest belief of your arrogance, your conceit, and your selfish disdain of the feelings of others, were such as to form the groundwork of disapprobation on which succeeding events have built so immovable a dislike, and I had not known you a month before I felt that you were the last man in the world whom I could ever be prevailed on to marry." You have said quite enough, madam. I perfectly comprehend your feelings and have now only to be ashamed of what my own have been. Forgive me for having taken up so much of your time and accept my best wishes for your health and happiness. And with these words, he hastily left the room and Elizabeth heard him the next morning open the front door and quit the house. The tumult of her mind was now painfully great. She knew not how to support herself, and from actual weakness sat down and cried for half an hour. 
Her astonishment, as she reflected on what had passed, was increased by every review of it. That she should receive an offer of marriage from Mr. Darcy. That he should have been in love with her for so many months. So much in love as to wish to marry her in spite of all the objections which had made him prevent his friends marrying her sister, and which must appear at least with equal force in his own case, was almost incredible. It was gratifying to have inspired unconsciously so strong an affection, but his pride, his abominable pride, his shameless avowal of what he had done with respect to Jane, his unpardonable assurance in acknowledging, though he could not justify it, and the unfeeling manner in which he had mentioned Mr. Wickham, his cruelty towards whom he had not attempted to deny, soon overcame the pity which the consideration of his attachment had for a moment excited. She continued in very agitated reflections, till the sound of Lady Catherine's carriage made her feel how unequal she was to encounter Charlotte's observation, and hurried her away to her room. Mm, this is marvelous stuff, people. It's so much better and deeper than what we know of the real-life encounters between Jane and Tom. It's better and deeper than what we know of anyone, practically, other than our own selves, maybe. And that's why these questions of matching real people to Jane Austen characters fall so short. It's like saying that Mozart heard raindrops on the rooftop and wrote a symphony. Sure, maybe that inspired him. But look what he did with it. Do you really need to hear the raindrops? In order to appreciate what happened? Or is it the, the, the trigger of inspiration? Just knowing that he was inspired and then imagining the way he imagined the rest. I suppose it's a little bit fun to listen to the raindrops and try to imagine your way into the symphony from that, which is why there is so much work done to look at Tom Lafroy and look for snippets of what he and Jane did together. Oh, he had a white coat and Darcy had a blue coat. Is that was was is that a sign? Is Jane telling us that, that this is him or not him or that he's different? Darcy's different or the same? Ah, it's fun to do that, I guess. When you love these books, you look for snippets of what he and Jane did together and see if we can find Elizabeth and Darcy in there. And then you get a little frustrated by that, so you say, "Well, maybe it's the other way around." Here's the problem. The two of them, Tom and Jane, really didn't have the kind of lengthy relationship that would let us see the entirety of the relationship that Elizabeth and Darcy undergo, including the change, including the misunderstandings. That's all invented by Jane. And the beginning where Elizabeth and Darcy meet is not really anything like the experience that Tom and Jane had when they met, from what we know. So I'm going to give you the Jack Wilson theory. Let's go back to the very beginning. When we first see Darcy, how is he described? Quote, But his friend Mr. Darcy soon drew the attention of the room by his fine, tall person, handsome features, noble mien, and the report, which was in general circulation within five minutes after his entrance, of his having 10000 a year. The gentleman pronounced him to be a fine figure of a man. The ladies declared he was much handsomer than Mr. Bingley, and he was looked at with great admiration for about half the evening, till his manners gave a disgust, which turned the tide of his popularity, etc., etc. Oh, he, 
maybe I should read it. For he was discovered to be proud, to be above his company and above being pleased, and not all his large estate in Derbyshire could then save him from having a most forbidding, disagreeable countenance and being unworthy to be compared with his friend. Money is inextricable from the portrait of Darcy. Within five minutes after his entrance, everyone knew that he had 10000 a year. Suddenly, the gentlemen say he's a fine figure. The ladies think he's handsome. And only when he was determined to be unpleasant, we hear that his large estate couldn't even save him. Hmm. Hmm. That is what is different here. Money. Money is inextricable from the way he's treated and from who he is. And Lefroy, Tom Lefroy, poor Tom, did not have it. If we look at Jane and Tom, what do we do with money? Money is what drove them apart. It was hugely important to them. It put them on that prong, right? The prong where if we think that Jane loved Tom and would have married for love, but Tom broke it off because of money. If we think that's what's important here, and that's what sent Jane toward her writing paper and what inspired the novel, what do we say? Do we say that Lefroy was prejudiced because of money and Jane was proud because of lack of it? Tom is being prudent in the world of Jane Austen. Neither side has money, and it would be imprudent to get married, even if there is mutual love. My view, the Jack Wilson view, let's call it that, is that we should stop the search, call off the hounds. Well, search if you want, but recognize that finding little details about Tom that match up with Darcy and his personality or with Elizabeth and her personality are kind of beside the point. And if you look at their relationship and try to match it up with what Elizabeth and Darcy face, you will probably be even more disappointed. Jane draws on her feeling of love. Perhaps, if that's what she felt toward Tom Lefroy, the excitement of it. You can find elements of her world in this novel for sure. An eligible man and an eligible woman meet at a ball. The neighborhood is there watching. Possibilities crackle in the air. They have feelings toward one another. They might be destined for each other. And there are obstacles. The sweetness of all this, the drama, the excitement, the heartbreak... The way life can turn on simple little things and the way people can be wrong about one another and the way things can sometimes not work out at all and sometimes they can. All that is there in Jane and Tom Lefroy and Jane the novelist is drawing upon them, taking the straw of life and spinning it into gold. But the comparisons of her and Tom Lefroy with Elizabeth and Darcy or Darcy and Elizabeth are really comparing apples to oranges because of one huge difference. Darcy has money, and Tom Lefroy doesn't. We're not on the prong of marriage without love being wrong, which is where Pride and Prejudice lives. We're on the prong of marriage without money being imprudent, which is a very different path. And that's the path that Jane and Tom were on. Jane was an advocate for love and romance and compatibility in a world where the more usual custom was to make a good match and then learn to love. She herself avoided mistakes when love wasn't there or when the match wasn't right. She did it in her own life and cautioned her niece to do the same. I'd like to think she'd have been a little more likely to plunge into a match with Tom Lefroy, in spite of the problems with money. But Tom 
Young Tom was different. He wasn't going to marry imprudently. His uncle was paying for his legal studies. He had no money. His brother was already a drain on the family. He had nine siblings. His parents could not afford it. If Jane was truly basing her novel on the Jane and Tom story, it might be called Pride and Pragmatism or Pragmatism and Practicality. The irony here is that Tom Lefroy eventually did quite well as a lawyer and a politician and a judge, and they would have made it. They could have been married. They would have had the the income, eventually. He earned it. It seems like it could have worked. He might have sensed that later in life, too, although by then he was loyal to his wife, who had been with him for decades. I know the temptation is to look at these real-life people and wonder about them. I like to celebrate the work itself because it's so rich and fascinating. And if we're looking for the inspiration, I think that's fun. I think that gives us something new to do, a new way to appreciate the book. But I also think we have to step back a little to view this at a more abstract level. Maybe Jane, fresh off of this romance, did some imagining. Maybe the first thing she imagined was, what if Tom Lefroy had had money? What if we took that problem away, just subtracted it from the equation? Because if she didn't do that... If she had made this book about two people with no money, but who loved one another, it would be a very different book, wouldn't it? And marriage wouldn't end the book, would it? Marriage never does end the story. That's a common complaint. We say, oh, and then they got married, and we all know, well, that's just the beginning. You can't say, and lived happily ever after, because you don't know. Because you don't know how that marriage is going to go. That's a common criticism of fairy tales and novels, romance novels. But look at how Mrs. Bennett thinks of the world. If I could get one daughter with Bingley and the others similarly situated, I would have nothing to wish for. Nothing else to wish for. My life would be complete. It's like those fathers and mothers who think, if my son or daughter would just give up acting and maybe become a dentist, I could sleep at night. It's not the end of the story, we know that, but it ends a part of the story, the part where these people are young and the money still has not been figured out, and there's still a risk, there's still something to be afraid of. If two people marry for love without money, you haven't ended even that part of the story. It's not even the world of, well, how are they going to manage the next 40 or 50 years? Are they going to get in lo- get along? Are they going to stay in love? Are they going to encounter some hardships? What's going to happen to these two? What will it be like for them to live together side by side? You're not even into that world yet. As you might ask, if if two people don't seem to be perfectly compatible, or, or, or even if they are, even if they are in love, without money, in the world of Jane Austen, there's the more immediate question of how they're going to make it tomorrow. What are they doing? What is, it's not even, will they be okay in five years? It's, will they be okay from day one? And so Tom did the prudent thing, and it possibly broke Jane's heart. He married a woman with money, which was practical, and he loved her, which is great. Nothing against that marriage, but missing out on a life with Jane Austen has to be considered something of a loss, too. Jane, who I'd like to think would have been willing to marry for love and then roll the dice on the money, 
in my estimation, my opinion. That makes her a little too good for him. Maybe that's my modern view creeping in. The modern view that love is more important than money. That the value system that makes it so hard for two people in love to actually marry each other is all out of whack. But if so, if that's my own recency bias creeping in, if I'm not being historically fair by imposing my modern view on Tom Lafroy, well, that's a modern view that Jane herself has done as much as anyone to create. Maybe I just think Jane was too good for him because he was too blind to see that she would have been worth the risk. But maybe I'm exerting a little pride and more than a little prejudice on her behalf. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. I hope you enjoyed this deep dive into the great Pride and Prejudice. Ugh, literature doesn't get any better than this. But the podcast might. Next week, we're going to have Chigozi Obioma, I think, and we'll talk about his life in Nigeria and his life in Turkey and his life in America and his love for the novel, The Remains of the Day. And we have an expert on John Keats coming up soon, too. A lot of great literature all around the corner. I hope you join us again for all of those episodes. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening. Oh, whoops, I almost forgot. We're part of LitHub Radio, and we are part of the Podglomerate, www.thepodglomerate.com. You can find out more at historyofliterature.com and at facebook.com slash historyofliterature. Where else? Oh, follow us on Twitter at the Jack Wilson, J-A-C-K-E Wilson, or you can follow Mike at Literature SC. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Podglomerate, a sonic universe.